Welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and I believe that good government matters, like, a lot. Oh, me too. I'm Abram Guerra, and I believe that complicated problems never have simple solutions. Oh, me too. If you work in a bureaucracy like we do, or if you care about bureaucracies, then we think you'll get a lot out of our podcast. The Radical Bureaucrat. All right. So on today's podcast, uh, we'll be interviewing Paul Forbes, uh, who's from the Expanded Success Initiative in New York City. Yeah. The Expanded Success Initiative was launched in 2012 to really get at how can schools get more young Black and Latino men not only ready to graduate, but ready for college. Uh, yeah, well, one of the big reasons that we wanted to interview Paul, and I think we talk about this a little bit on the interview, um, is just the kind of like uh, status or role that he plays in our sort of little community of people who are trying to do better by uh, these particular groups of kids. So Paul is the kind of person who like multiple people sort of call dad or mm-hmm. or their brother and who who's just uh, to, to a point that Sam made toward the end of the first episode, like just such a loving person and just like really pours himself out for for people and i would say you know within the doe the department of education the city school district the expanded success initiative and paul himself as the leader of it are the one place where you can expect to have fairly radical conversations about race and where you, where you know those conversations are happening at their conferences, in their trainings, uh, they're confronting the issue head on. And it's, it's kind of fascinating to see that facet of the bureaucracy mm. really doing that work, whereas in so many other parts, it doesn't exist. Yeah, um, many, many uh, you may be surprised to learn that many Americans are paralyzed by the idea of talking about race. Um, let alone and, bureaucracies. Yeah, let alone bureaucracies, which are very risk averse, very not interested in talking about difficult things. Um, but Paul has been a big part of helping a large share of our organization to think through how we have a little more courage in the face of these realities that our students are are living, uh, that all of us are living, but that our students are living in ways that are going to impact the rest of their lives. Um, and you know, one of the things that I learned pretty early from Paul is that when you're really honest and intentional about uh, these issues about race and, and class and gender and, and bias and um, the, these sorts of, you're just really honest about these issues it really uh, appeals to people who have feel as though they've been kind of like suffering in silence, uh, who feel like, you know, every time uh, a, a young black man is is sort of shot in the streets that they die a little bit inside and they have to come mm. into work and pretend like everything is mm. fine. Um, and and uh, Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't sort of play around with that. He, he, he takes it on head on and, and he has he leads the difficult conversations in a way that really like um, calls people, uh, calls to people mm. um, who, who, who are feeling things, um, but who don't feel as though they have a space to talk about it. And so uh, I, think, I think that's a big part of why uh, so many people in, in the DOE sort of look to him and his leadership in this way. And we look to him as a, a type of model of a radical bureaucrat. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. The reason that I thought of you, it was my idea, 
And part of the reason was this conversation that you and I were having about like trust. I don't know how much of the trust part we'll get into, but like you maybe out of anybody that I've seen have like built this community, have like convened this large community of folks. And I know that this year, the like theme at the launch was this African proverb. If you want to go fast, you should go alone. But if you want to go far, you should go together. Is that, did I get it right? And so that's sort of why I was like, oh, we need to talk to Paul. We need to talk about the Paul about this idea about building community and going together. Um, and like, w- you know, why? Why do we why should we focus on building community or coalition with with others or with a large group of people? You know, so so for me, there's a part of me with where I've been brought up with West Indian parents and growing up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and this idea, and also growing up in a church community, this idea that my father would always say, you know, you're responsible for yourself. You're responsible for the grades you get. You're responsible for the trouble you get into or don't get into. That's, that's when you don't ever blame someone else. And so there was an individual um, responsibility piece that was there. But there was also this teaching of you're responsible for your siblings, my brother and my sisters, and you're responsible to your community, right? And so there was always this balance that we had growing up of you do what needs to be done, that's your responsibility to do it, but at the same time, you can't get what you need to do if you're not thinking about the larger community. And I've had to deal with that, um, I would say almost a dichotomy of understanding where I should be, right? How much of it do I work alone to get what needs to be done? versus um, ensuring that I'm working in a community. And since I've gone into my professional career, um, you know, when I was in school, there would be some things I heard about these group studies where I'm like, wait a minute, I don't study with groups. I study alone because that grade is ultimately going to be mine. Uh, But then I learned about this dynamics of group study and group projects and it became clear to me that things like jigsaw, right? Understand that you can um, cover a book and learn a book or a topic when other folks are involved and bring their input and bring um, diverse and various ideas. And so it's been, a, especially in my professional career, where I've really begun to understand and appreciate this idea of going together um, and not try to do everything alone because left my own devices, I probably would want to stay alone because I'm going to say, you know what, I want to blame anyone. If it comes out okay, then yeah, I was on it. If it doesn't, then I, it's my blame as well, right? So I'm, I'm more convinced today that in order to move the needle, to do this work, to build capacity and institutional changes, that we have to do this together. It's a challenge, but I do believe that systemically, this can only happen when we begin to work in a communal way. More so now, it's clearer to me that through this work, if we don't figure out ways to cross-pollinate, if we don't figure out ways to work together, that we'll always feel like we're spinning our wheels and all, and it'll be easier for us to feel like nothing's being done. So, Paul, I mean, Abram and I are... are especially Abram, but both of us are obviously familiar with your work, but can you talk about what the work is and, and why the cross-pollination now with, with the work that you're doing in the DOE? What's maybe just for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. So 
currently I'm the director of the Expanded Success Initiative, ESI, which is part of the Young Men's Initiative in New York City. The Young Men's Initiative was, was announced by the former mayor of Bloomberg um, in 2011, the largest public-private partnership in the country that would focus on improving outcomes for black and Latino young men in New York City and the areas where justice, employment, health, and education. I was blessed and fortunate, as I was in the Department of Education, to be chosen to lead ESI, Expanded Success Initiative, which is a focus on improving the number of black and Latino young men who graduate from high school, college, and career ready. And while I have been doing this work, at that point, it's probably my 15th year in the DOE or the Board of Ed. I was doing this kind of work um, in some form or fashion with elementary and middle schools. This is the first time that I've been working with high schools at this size, right, with 40 high schools. Hmm. And these schools were basically going to look and see what they were doing and saying, we're doing a good job of moving our young people to and through high school. But now the question is, can we take what we're doing here, use those same tools and resources and ideology to support the young people to ensure that they're ready to enter, persist, and succeed in higher ed and the next chapter in their lives, right? And so, again, looking at that work was one thing for me to say, okay, I'm going to look at these schools. They're going to be a research and development project that we're doing. But again, by the end of the first summer, I said, while well, we had 40 individual schools that were doing things that was customized to their community, it was incumbent on me and the ESI team that I said, listen, we have to figure out how to bring these folks together who are doing whatever they're doing in their neighborhoods, in their geographic districts, wherever it is, that they can learn with them from each other because it's just impossible to believe while one school is doing it well, there's other schools that are doing things well or not doing it well. And it's important that for us to do this, you learn with and from each other. So there's some schools that continue to work in isolation. I feel like I can do this on my own. And it was clear from the, from the data and the responses that as good as you think you are, you can only go from good to great when it's clear to you that you don't have all the answers and the answers are out there, but you have to be receptive to hear that, but to also share with that reciprocity piece. And so that's when we really started creating that community of ESI liaisons in schools that would come together to hear from the experts in the field, locally and nationally, but also to hear from the experts who were in the room who were doing the work as well. It's difficult, but that's been the mindset that I've had with intentions. Got it. Wait, so you don't have the answer? <laughs> right. So, so, right. So, I'm wondering why, you know, we're on this podcast. So, I'm going, hey, wait a minute. Um, I'm here to hear from other people about, no, no, no. We have ideas now. I do believe that I have the answer in terms of what it takes to create the conditions for mm-hmm. that to happen and how intentional we have to be. I'm confident in the approach that I personally committed to and that I'm taking. And part of the answer is built in there, right? I'm the philosophy major, Thimaha Socrates, who say, you know, listen, I'm not here to give you that answer. But going through this process, we will find out what the answer is not that's going to bring us closer to what the answer is. And so I believe that I've been on that kind of journey with this and now in the fifth year of ESI and 21st year in the Board of Ed, Department of Ed, 
I do believe that, again, I have a framework and a theory of action that has been helping to put us in a place where we truly understand how we move the needle. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the example of the jigsaw reading, which is a very kind of like teacher move. An interesting explanatory comma, right, is that like a, a jigsaw reading is when you take some body of text and then you cut it up into pieces and you have different people read different pieces and then you have them come together and talk about their piece. And then by that, that's sort of like putting the puzzle back together. A jigsaw is sort of also a saw, right? Which is a really sloppy way to cut uh, a piece of wood. And so like there is there is a kind of messiness that results in the sort of approach, right? A messiness of different people and trying to figure out how the pieces fit together, whatever. And yet the the pieces do fit together um, in the end. And I wonder, like, you know, you I sort of joke about you having the answer, um, but it's really kind of like a system of answers, a system of causes and effects that you were trying to sort of like tweak uh, to get a different outcome. And like, you know, 40 or 400 or 4,000 different schools can be doing different tweaks of different small things. And that's where the collaboration piece, what I'm hearing from you is that where the, that's where the collaboration piece is so important. Um, but, you know, then it, it, I think it sort of comes into this how question, like, how do you do that? How do you build that collaboration? Um, yeah. And then I guess that sort of leads me to the question, what do you think are some of the things that you see that make it difficult to organize people into sort of effective collaboration or effective community? Um, so, like, yeah. I, I'm curious, since you've been doing this for quite some time now and you've been building what I think is a pretty impressive community of practitioners, what are some of the pitfalls and some of the things you know, per- personal personality things or, or political yep. things or resource things that, that start to make it difficult to do that collaboration that you're trying to do. So I think one of the, you know, I want to continue with that jigsaw um, analogy that you're using, right? So when I was learning, my father teach me about using a saw and we started using, besides just a regular hand saw, the technique that was used and started getting it. Using my first electrical saw, there were certain things that he taught me, and there was a guide that he would show me. You make your mark, you follow the guide, and the straight saw blade. So it was pretty relatively easy at that point, and would do it, right? Mm-hmm. When I used a jigsaw for the first time, as you said about being a little sloppy, there wasn't a guide in the same way because there was like what you want to do, but you, you, you didn't have the guide in the same way as I had a circular saw. And I think in the same way, it's one thing that has to happen when you come to this place where you're going to use this kind of, we're going to build community and it's going to be a sloppy, it's going to be a little nerve wracking, but you have to trust. I think that's a big part of it, right? Because it has to be clear that we're not doing it the traditional way of people say, okay, here's, here's the approach we're going to use. We lay it out and you can see the people are going off the rail because you're off the path. It's a, it's, it's, it's different, right? So the first thing is just that mindset of saying, I have to trust that this is going to be something that's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to have its, um, you know, and there's going to be some tweaks that will have to occur. So I think it's a mindset piece is big for me, right? Whatever I've been doing, I do believe about mindset is huge. That in itself becomes a pitfall if people aren't willing to be vulnerable 
and be open to a different approach that may not be as clean as what they might have learned and heard before, right? So I do trust that people say the answers in the room, and I hear that it becomes an empty platitude because people say it, but then I still hear those same people that say, but here's the answers. They hear what we're going to do. I'm going to say, but you just said the answers in the room. You, or maybe you were right. Maybe you were saying the answers in the room, but you weren't talking about the collective. You were saying, I'm still the person in the room, and so I'm giving the answer, and here's how we do this, right? So creating the conditions are huge, but going back to what I said before, they're going to keep us being nervous because we're oftentimes given instructions, directions of how that should look. And if they're not prepared for that, they don't want to go there. So if people will walk in and say, well, Paul, you're doing this. And why exactly are we creating this space that you're talking about? Um, what's going to happen next? And, and people, and oftentimes it's the higher ups, right, who come in and want to see something. They have their own ideas about what it should look like mm-hmm. because they've been taught a certain way. And for me, if I'm going to say I'm going to honor the community, if I'm going to build that trust, I'm going to allow the process, right? I'm a a basketball fan. If those who know about the Philadelphia 76 and talk about trust the process, that's a thing they've had. And some people might look at it going, why hasn't this player played for a year? Why are they resting the best star in back-to-back games? And they've been out there saying trust the process. And Mm. it's huge. I'm currently returning from Plattsburgh, New York, where I took one of my young men back to school. He had a, you know, he could have taken a bus and gone up on his own, but I said, hey, you know, um, would love to, you know, give you a ride up. His parents weren't able to take him. For me to say to his parents, I'm going to, I'll give him a ride, or for him to say to his parents, you know, Mr. Ford, you're going to give me a ride. I know that that's based on what his parents have seen and heard about what I've created for young men. And I go to their school, I, when they have tragedy, I was at the school. When they have celebrations, when they have games, whatever it is, I was there. That builds a trust. And it means a lot to me because the first time I did a long distance was to Kentucky. And there's not many parents who would be like, okay, I don't know this man. I don't know. Why would I trust my sons to be going to three and four of them? But I did that two years ago with them. And so... Yes, they had opportunity again to bring this back. That's part of building that community. But again, there's an uneasiness to some people when they see that and hear that because they don't know what goes into the intentional, purposeful work that's going into building what now exists. It's not so easy. So someone might look and say, oh, well, I could do that. Well, you might be able to do that. But trust me, it's, it's a process. Without that trust, you're not going to build this community. People are like, wait a minute, the first time something happens and it gets a little messy, and people start blaming, they're going to bounce out. So I would say those three things right there are some of the obstacles within the group and for folks who might be um, observing and looking to see whether it's worth it. Gonna be one is going to be that mindset um, and belief. Two is going to be a vulnerability um, for the folks who are in that process and those who are outside. And the third one is just the speed of trust building and trust in that process to get where we are so we can navigate through good and bad times. If we don't have that, I think it all falls apart. I think that's pretty amazing that I think it's rare, right? Like taking your 76ers analogy, um, it's rare to have someone above you who's willing to allow the, the process to, to play out. So that's, that's powerful in and of itself. And I, I could ask you more about that, but I, I actually have a different question I wanted to ask you about, Paul, which is... Yeah. Um, just the intersection of your work 
with policy? I mean, you've talked more, you've talked a lot about collaboration and community and kind of practice at the ground level down to the level of the individual student who you take, you just took back up state to school. What about policy? Like, are, are they a part of your work? Is, is, is changing policy a part of your work? I'm sure on some level it is. So at what level does that intersect with what you're doing? So, you know, people have said to me before, you know, do you want to go into policy making? And you know, I've had some folks, some of my direct, um, supervisors at time to say, okay, so Paul, part of this work has to lead to the policy piece. I, and I agree with that. I agree that, you know, we need to do this work and understand um, that it needs to move to the policy piece, right? So I, I know my limitations and I know where my strengths are, my weaknesses, and I think there are folks that are better positioned and stronger with using data or understanding what this means in a more macro level that can do this work. The work that's being done needs to move to a policy level. Because again, Paul Forbes could do this, but I believe that there's, first of all, structure that needs to be created to allow that more people are doing or thinking that this is possible right. and that it can be and should be implemented across the board of how we do this kind of work and how we intentional. That being said, I would say that I have my own apprehensions and my own fears about what happens when people are going on this journey towards policy of who gets involved, who, who, who wants to make their own tweaks for whatever agenda. And I'm, again, I'm not saying I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in seeing it at the ground in the trenches and putting in that work. Right. And then having mm. the quote-unquote smarter people be the ones that take <laughs> that and said, you see what can be done? Look at what's being done. I think it's people who just don't do this work, but they feel like nothing's going to come from that. There's people like Samson Youngway, who I've worked with a data scientist. I can look at things and see what the policy would be. So I, I believe in folks being on the, on, on the bus, but I also believe in us being in the right seats, right? So I believe yeah. the policy must flow from this but the right people should be doing that. Yep. I'm not sure I'm the one that should be doing that. I think I need to be better at that and have that lens as thinking. Part of ESI was to say, what things should we build policy out of based on what we've learned? Best practices, emerging practices, promising practices. What should we put into place um, in our schools to move the needle based on what we have gleaned from what we're learning? Yeah. And that makes perfect sense to me, except that policy people are not smarter than you. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. But it's a, it's well, that, a, that it is another, a different. That could be another podcast, my friend. Yeah, I, right. I, I'll, I'll stick by what I said. It's a, but it's it is a it is a different type of thinking for for sure than like being able to talk to a kid or 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 coalesce a community um, and facilitate. Like that is a different type of of a per, approach. So that makes sense to me. And so my my just quick follow up on that is: Are you explicitly having conversations with policy people? Because at one point you said like the hope is that we're yeah. building something that that policy people will notice. Or, but have you are are there policy people who've been brought in to observe or or have those conversations? Yeah. So it's been back and forward. So because of, you know, working in the Department of Education, what I would say one, the only thing, the only constant that I know in the DOE is that there'll be change, mm -hmm. right? And so there's been, from the time I started in 2012, there has been a number of changes, a number of people. I'm one of the few people who can still come to a table and look around and see other folks who were there in February of 2012 when I started. Very few people right. within the DOE. Oh, that's right? an eternity. So five years? 
Yeah, correct. correct. That's like, you know, after the point, dog yeah. years, that's like seven times five. It's like 35 years, it feels like. Um, and, you know, it, it's incredible. And sometimes that's sad in me. For us to put it into policy and to do this work, you need people with institutional knowledge. You got to know the stories and you have to know the data. During that time, there was intentional approaches for bringing policy folks to bring this to fruition and people could see and talk about. Other times, it hasn't been there. So it start and stop and start and stop. And, you know, what does assessments look like? Are we, if we're looking at black, Latino young men, let's think about how we degrading policies and that we use and assessments. And now I work with a mastery collaborative. What do we grade? What do we assess? What seat time looks like for a young person? And can we bring an equitable approach to how we evaluate readiness, college and career readiness? How do we evaluate that? Right. And we've brought in a culturally responsive approach to that. There's been some writings and there's been some folks from our research teams that have looked at that and said, if you would like to institute ESI in your school, here are the things that you need to look at and do and to be able to sit at the table with those folks that can make those policy. Like I said, because of the community that's been created, there are many people who are now within the ESI community that were not part of the 40 original schools that are seeing things that are saying, this is worth examining and addressing and going further with. So again, that's where I think that that's been part of the process. Yeah, it strikes me that when we talk about policy, we're sort of talking about how we scale. And in, mm-hmm. and in many ways, we're talking about how we scale anonymously or scale transactionally. Because policies are, you know, policies are a big part of what is a bureaucracy, right? Like policy is the rules that you have to follow when you have this particular job as a bureaucrat or as a functional person, as an educator, as a recruiter or HR person, like everybody who works within a large organization or bureaucracy has to follow policies, rules. And so scaling requires some kind of policy so that people who have not sort of experienced the process or learned the process experientially um, can still uh, implement the the sort of desired change. And yet a lot of what you're talking about is about that process. Right. And and I wonder how much of it is a like like altitude thing if you're if you're sort of down doing the the work at the student by student level. Or if you're at this like, you know, 10,000 feet level where, you know, er, you know, everybody is sort of looks like ants and like you're you're doing these things that impact large, humongous groups of people, whether it's an issue of that, that at at the high highest sort of altitudes, you need rules because it's just too difficult to see. You need too big of a magnifying glass or whatever. Ants and a magnifying glass (laughs) is probably not the best metaphor. Um, (laughs) I, I can't help but feel like policy is intended to sort of predictably exercise control over the process. And what you're right. advocating as, as the need to sort of build community is all about the process and trusting the process. And so I, yep. I, I'm sort of struggling to figure out how to see it not as an either or, but as like a both. A both um, and. Yeah, as a both and. And, and like... How do you do policy that ensures process? How do you do a process that leads to changes in policy rather than sort of saying, okay, you take the process road and I'll take the policy road and I'll get to Scotland before you, right? 
in thinking about this idea of scale. Like a lot of what I'm thinking about when I'm asking you about community is how have you scaled this community to so many people? And that's through processes, it seems, is the answer, through trusting the process and and really putting in the time, putting in the effort, um, putting in the miles. Is that by definition limited in its scale? And is that enough? And and how do you transition to policy uh, work without losing the value and meaning of that process? I don't really have an answer, yeah. but I'm just sort of like kind of wrestling with this sort of tension. Yeah, I, I, I love that question. And um, it goes back to, like I said, folks much smarter than me can um, help with that. But I, 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 it's a philosophical um struggle that I've had too, right? So if folks have said to me similar things like, Paul, it's great that you can bring together all these people and like-minded and even some folks who are not like-minded who are willing to have this kind of discourse to understand and move. But what then, right? What, what do we even get from there? And, and how do we um, create that space that out of what you've created or what's been built that you now have people who are now laying out the policy is using this process, as you said, they have that mindset, right? Because if you don't have the understanding of what this is, you will go in and create policies without having this knowledge. So maybe it's good to have folks um, go through this process. Like you said, not an either or, but a both and kind of mindset, because again, as opposed to a transactional relationship, it's an interactional relationship. So how do we create that? And so, again, I think my bias is I get nervous with the policy folks who are coming with already their preconceived notions or their book knowledge and say, okay, this is what it is, we're going to do this without having appreciated the relational transaction that's occurred. So in terms of, of the process that you're working, um, how is it that you've been able to do this for so long? Like we said, this, this five, six years, that's an eternity and I'm wondering if part of it is because you have a, such a clear sense of what your place and your role is in terms of building this community and, and you're not stepping into the yeah. policy realm. And and as you said, there are people who come in and, and who are questioning the model and, and saying like, well, we need to get, we, we need you to do this or we need you to do that. Like those are the things yep. that can really sidetrack any project. There was one thing when I started with ESI, I said, I am going to stick with ESI um, at least until our young, the first cohort of young men graduate and into their first year of college. Um, because ESI, again, was about college and career readiness, right? So yeah, you couldn't, after three years, when they're going into their senior year, if you're not there anymore or if it's gone, then we go, well, were we successful? I don't know, we've been waiting for at least six years or so um, to see. And I know I personally made a vow that at least five years I would be with ESI. And I made a vow to some of my young men and some staff, because there were staff people who were saying, Paul, we know how this works. You get a few dollars, you do an initiative, the new bells and whistles come, the new dollars come, and they move on to something else. Mm -hmm. And I vowed that I would um, commit to this and advocate. I've always said, you, you do the work, and I promise you that I'll be advocating but this is a two-way street. We got to do this so I can help you help yourself, right? And so there were many schools that did not honor that, and that's okay. I didn't expect that to be done 100% fidelity. Um, but there were many schools that did. 
that cohort, they said they, 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 they honored my commitment. They saw it and they honored it by saying, we will continue to persist as well because you were willing to persist and honor what you said, right? Mm-hmm. But throughout the difficulties and the challenges, you did that. Mm-hmm. And what that does is also create a community of other folks who are saying, you may not know Paul Forbes, you may not know about ESI, but let me tell you something. If you want to see and look at what's possible, you should come and see what they're doing. Or if you want to see from someone because you've been burnt before by bureaucrats or folks from a central team who says something, but then they do what they want to do or is top down. But if you want to see someone who's going to be here on the weekends, who will come to events or whatever, I've been blessed with the health and strength to be able to do this um, and that stamina. And so I would say, I, I make that commitment to do it. And I've tried to honor folks who are doing that as well to say, well, Paul will. And if he, if he can't do it, he's going to do what needs to be done or reach out on that behalf. So I think I've really... Um, without turning my own horn, I've been faithful to this process. As much as I've asked folks to be, I'm not going to ask you to do it if I'm not willing to do it. And so I think that's important because in in organizations like the DOE and organiz- federal, I mean, all over, there's a mistrust of people saying, okay, you sit up there and tell us what to do, but you don't know what it is to be down here doing this work. And what I can say is that I do know what it is. And I can tell stories when people say, well, why is this working? How is it? I will sit in a meeting and tell you the stories of Jonathan Benjamin. I will tell you the stories of Angel Diaz. I have the personal story, so I can show you some data, but I also can tell you the stories. And so when people have come in and said, oh, we want to go in a different direction, there's been some pushback from people saying, no, 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 you can't eliminate that. We need this. We don't have to be the ones always talking about what needs to be done or how this is beneficial. There's folks out there who tell me that they found out because they were hearing about someone talking about, this is real. We're affecting change for the families. You see the reaction by the father, the mother, the sister, the brother, who see Jonathan, but also see that there's people in the DOE and there's people who love and care about him. And when other folks say, hey, we're moving on to something else, why well, I've, I've been able to say, but we can't. I've been at the table when I've said, but we can't. We can't just move on. And here's the story. This is why we can't move on. They know the the passion, and they know from others who have said, "Yeah, this work and Paul, this is, he's about this, and this work is is working." We need to do some work on looking at data and how we use sustainability. And I'm I'm receptive and open to that, but the idea of just the work that's being put away because someone thinks something bigger and better is out there, it's not so easy to to break that because now again you have an army of people. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. We're super grateful that that you took the time on your drive down to talk to us. Absolutely. I, I think one of the things that I got out of this conversation uh, around this sort of policy versus process or whatever um, is that like who gets to be in the room when the policy is sort of negotiated right, is such a key right. like. And whether or not the people who are in that room have experienced any of the process or if they're just coming from a place of their just own good ideas or books, which I I enjoy books. I'm big on books. But um, (laughs) but I think that what you're describing is so experiential. Community is so experiential that you cannot have a policy to build 
real community. Um, if, if you haven't experienced like the, the, the reality of building that community and kind of going back to the jigsaw skill saw metaphor, like it, you know, there is skill saw is great if what you want is a straight line, but that's, you know, it's not a straight line. Community is not a straight line. And so like, if you've never worked with that tool of building a community, building those curves and, and getting, getting in that sort of messiness, you know, maybe you should be more reticent about deciding what rules everybody should follow in order to build community. Um, and I think that we've seen probably the limits of what the sort of skill saw approach can do in education. I think we've seen the limits of what the one size fits all uh, curriculum, the one size fits all educational experience can do. And I think that what we need is, you know, kind of fundamentally a more responsive kind of approach that is sort of messier to figure out and, and harder. And so to do policy around that requires that you go through that experience of, of getting in community and, and understanding the, the curves and the edges to borrow a phrase from John Legend. Hmm. You know, in a few months, we'll be um, remembering the 50th year that Dr. King was assassinated. And I say, you know what? We have not figured out using these, as you say, conventional ways or strategies that people think they've known best and work. I'm saying maybe part of this that so many researchers have spoken about in terms of relationship and James Comey and folks have said about what this is all about. I've had enough people have said, we know what to do, but do we have the will? I think that the relationship piece, that community piece of saying, we're going to come together and do this as a unit, the Mbutu kind of mentality of saying, you know what, yeah. maybe we've gone with a Eurocentric kind of view for so long that we've been biased and we've been clouded with this mindset, but let's look at how natives Native Americans, what they used for how they build community, how they were so successful, or look at ancient mm, yeah. um, um, communities and societies that were here, right here where we live right now. Let's honor that. Let's try that out. Paul, thank you so much for your time again, man. We want you to keep doing what you're doing. Yes, sir. That sounded like a great closing to me, but do you have any other uh, thoughts? No, that, no, no. If yeah. it sounded great, I'm going to go out okay, of that I'm going to mess that up. I'm going to say thank you <laughs> uh, to you guys for allowing me to be a part of this. If we want to go fast, we'll go alone. But if we want to go far, we're going to continue to go together. And that's what we're doing. So thank you to both of you. Yeah, Likewise. Hey everyone, this is Abram, and we just wanted to quickly interrupt the episode with a real-time update about how the podcast process is going. Yeah, and so this is Sam, and Abram, check it out. I met with a young colleague from another city agency, and she told me, I've been listening to your podcast, and I realized I'm a radical in denial. A radical in denial. That sounds like a good episode title. Okay, so what do you think she meant? Yeah. Well, she works in the criminal legal system, and she said that she'd been trying to do everything that the system asks of her, but she wasn't being honest with herself or with others about her real aspirations for affecting change. Mm. And then this is the key. She also realized that by denying herself her radicalness, she was in essence propping up the existing system rather than pushing for real change. Mm, yeah, I could see that. And so then did she feel some kind of way about that realization? Oh, she was energized. I mean, I'm telling you, she walked into my office 
and just started talking as soon as she sat down. It was a lot like um, Patrick's reaction, which we described in episode one of this season. Okay. She had so many ideas she couldn't stop. Wow, that's so cool. Um, yeah, that's like exactly why we're doing this whole crazy project, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And that's why we're planning for season two. And everybody out there, that's why we need your help. Okay. Putting on a podcast is a lot of work. And to make this sustainable, we're going to need to pay some folks to do some of that work with us. Oh, we just hit them with the ask. Okay, so check it out. There's editing the podcast. And then we have like a whole website and a newsletter. We've got to write show notes. And then we've got to re-edit the podcast when we realize that something is different. And there's a little bit more editing to do right before we post each episode. But we have so many dreams for the podcast. And more than that, we have so many dreams for building and expanding the Radical Bureaucrat community. Hashtag Team RB. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. So here's what we've done. (laughs) We set up a PayPal button on our website at RadicalBureaucrat.com to launch our first ever fundraising effort. This will enable us to put out a second season to reach more people with even better and more content. Again, please go to RadicalBureaucrat.com and hit the PayPal button. We'd also really like to hear from you whether or not you can donate on PayPal. So what do you think we should do for future episodes? How has the podcast been resonating with you? And what else can we do to spread the word about this community and this podcast? We'd love to get these suggestions by email at info at RadicalBureaucrat.com or as comments on the blog or on Twitter. We appreciate you. Yes, so much. Okay, so now let's get back to the show. So we just got off the phone with Paul Forbes, who was driving back from upstate, having dropped off uh, one of the students he works with at, at college. And we're debriefing. What would we take away? Abram, what, what are your big takeaways from the conversation um a handful of things i think the the biggest thing is this sort of dichotomy which i'm trying not to think of as like a either or thing but this dichotomy of like the process and the sort of policy as like complementary pieces so the specific work that that he's doing um at a very kind of granular level convening and building this community, doing technical training, all this stuff, is more that sort of process or practice-oriented work. And then how you scale that kind of work through the sort of tool set of policy and the ways in which doing that in, in some ways like threatens the fidelity of that like process. I don't think there's a resolution necessarily, but mm-hmm. but I do think that that is a part of where the work is at. I, I'm not sure if I heard exactly like, what is it about right now? Uh, and maybe it's the larger political climate, the national climate, but the, the, it's sort of the time is now to sort of build a larger, broader community around this work of equity for traditionally under-advantaged categories, black and brown students, black and brown boys in particular. So yeah, like, I don't, I don't know that I've thought of a resolution to the to that dichotomy between sort of practice and policy, or that one exists. Um, I don't know. Is this something that that you've thought about before, or, or that you've sort of uh, taken a run at in your own work? A resolution to the dichotomy between practice and policy. I mean, <laughs> you want yeah. to ask a different question? <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a tough one, Abram. I mean, I don't know what it, what I appreciated though for him, and I think this is true for a lot of effective leaders and I, I thought almost more about him as a leader than I did about him as 
um, like someone within the bureaucracy is that he had such mm. clarity of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, I'm, I leave that for the people who are smarter than me. But I think it's much more like it takes a lot of intelligence on his part to n- say, this is where I feel like I can make the impact. And then, you know, something that you and I uh, have talked about is just, well, then how do we help him? Like, how, how can people who are on the policy side understand and appreciate what he's doing? And he even said, like, I look to like both of you to help. And it's like, uh, I'd love to help, but I know I'm not helping you right now. Like, is there more I can do? What do so, I do? Yeah. I need to work that into my job description to figure out how to help him. But, you know, just going to my big takeaways from the conversation, he's a different kind of bureaucrat. Like, I, I think, mean, is he a bureaucrat? Is he a I bureaucrat? Think you, I think you hit on that in something you were saying that I think bears like teasing out mm-hmm. that like, he he demonstrates this clarity of purpose and even this kind of like entanglement of his identity and his upbringing yeah. right it, that that really d- is is this sort of hallmark of a really good leader right? right and is there a difference between a leader and a bureaucrat and like is that the difference is the difference that you know a bureaucrat is figuring out the sort of weaving through the machine and the leader is sort of you know, I'm going to let somebody else do that. Here's what I think is important, and this is what I'm going to do. I'd like to think that he is a model of a radical bureaucrat. Okay, let's call it that. Yeah. (laughs) I want to just tie it back. I mean, one thing that came to me is the contrast with our earlier conversation about Eva Moskowitz. I mean, the the article we read was really asking, does democracy get in the way? And Mm -hmm. part of that, that question, inherent in that question, is democracy too slow? Is it too messy? Do we need to cut through it sometimes for the benefit of the kids? Mm -hmm. And he had a really so deeply held um, and he wasn't making an argument, but he has a deeply held belief that it's never going to be effective if that process doesn't involve uh, community input and, and that we can expect, you know, it goes back to the African proverb, like the proverb itself is the response to that entire article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea that like what we think of as democracy maybe is a midpoint on a spectrum. And on the other, on the ends of the spectrum are on one hand, this like authoritative dictatorial kind of model. I've got the answer and everybody needs to do it. Yep. And then on the other end is sort of what Paul is expressing, which is sort of like true democracy ruled by the demos, by the mob, where like, Everybody needs to participate and be involved, and we've got to go through this process. And I think you and I both have been involved in in what felt like overly democratic processes, mm-hmm. where like you know, there's no uh, way to find consensus and a decision because there's too many voices with different interests pulling on mm-hmm. the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe what we built and that we think of as a democracy is actually kind of like a compromise between those two extremes. Right. And the question is, is how to sort of pull in one direction or the other as needed um, to, to do better. Yeah. You know, one last thing I want to say is that, uh, you know about the Philadelphia 76ers and the process? Actually, I didn't. I let, okay. I, I enjoy kind of playing along to people's yeah. sports uh, metaphors. So or, let, me, or, let me spell that out yeah. for a second. Can you, please? So <laughs> it's really interesting because the funny thing is he compared his process to theirs, but the jury is still out on the 76ers. Okay. So that, that story is so not So maybe done. he'll regret it. He might regret it. <laughs> like, so what happened was that... Um, the 76ers basically started tanking, I don't know how many years ago, 
so that they could get higher draft picks because the lower ah, you finish in the league, the higher right. the draft pick you get. But during the process, their fan base was irate. People around the league were like, this is an abomination. You can't have a league where teams are just tanking and clearly not trying to get better. But the process was we're going to go for a championship and we're not going to get a championship unless we get these top players. I think people are excited about the team and I think people recognize that they're still really young and with another Mm. year or two, they might get really good, but they might not. And Mm -hmm. And if they never get to that elite level, like will it have been worth it? And there's other teams that have are winning championships and didn't go through the same process. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the process has become a rallying cry right. in, in Philadelphia. And so, man, I, I'm a big believer in process. Like mm-hmm. process yeah, is sometimes my downfall. Is there another way? Is that, is that, I guess it, you know, one lesson is there's no one best way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to err on Paul's side though. Yeah. I think that I can't really guarantee that people will know what they need to, um, I can't really guarantee that um, we'll have like good ideas or answers, but I can stick to a process, right? And I can trust in a process to produce through dialogue or through whatever, whatever the process is, yeah. um, to produce something better than just m- me or you or some talented person thinking of a solution. Yeah. And so I think I also err on Paul's side of that spectrum that I described of wanting to involve all of the people who are affected by these issues that we're hoping to solve or make progress against um, and like hearing what they think the solutions are and par- doing sort of more participatory work, community-oriented work, um, which is why I want to talk to him in the first place is because I know that, that this is sort of a big part of what he does. All right, so Abram, let's end like good radicals. What's one thing that you've learned that you can take into your work? I learned that uh, there's a basketball team called the 76ers. <laughs> um, no, so, so one thing um, that I'm going to take back is you know, I really liked this metaphor um, of the the jigsaw and the circular mm. saw. I think that there's limitations to like any metaphor, but like thinking about what's the right tool for the job and is more process and participatory work the solution, i.e. the jigsaw, the messiness, the curviness, or is it a case where you have to set up like guards and like rails and then like power through a straight cut um, and, and get that same straight cut a thousand times. And that's sort of more the policy tool. What you learned today? One thing I take away is, you know, he talked about three things as being essential to his process, mindset, vulnerability, and trust. I just had a conversation this past week about mindset and the importance of mindset. And actually, I I said to a counselor something and I'm, I'm going to keep using it. I was like, don't do that. That's a compliance mindset, mm. you know? And so I was like, ooh, that's kind of good. Um, so I, I'm aligned with Paul. You on came that. up with that on the fly? I came up with it on the fly. Yeah. Um, but he took it much further and he's obviously been thinking this stuff through and uh, I appreciated his thoughts on it. All right. And finally, we should end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, or maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.